Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we're bringing you a presentation that was delivered as part of the 2014 Acton Lecture Series, featuring John Chuck Chalbert as he plays the role of G.K. Chesterton. In his performance, Chesterton speaks about America, which he thought was the only country with the soul of a church. He also addresses the state of the family, past and present. His starting point and end point is this. Without the family, we are helpless before the state. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash actonvault. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Good evening. Welcome to the Acton Institute. Uh, for those that are still uh, enjoying their food and beverage, uh, let me just say that G.K. Chesterton would be very um, impressed by you if, you know, if you're over there enjoying food, because I think he did. I think he did, actually. Uh, he was a man who enjoyed a good meal and a good pint. Um, so welcome to the Acton Institute again. And on behalf of uh, Chris Maurin and Father Robert Sirico and our entire staff, it's a real joy for all of us to welcome you here uh, to the place that we get to call home. It's a real privilege and honor to work for the Institute. Uh, many of you have been supporters of the work now for almost a quarter of a century. Can you believe that? 25 years ago, Father Robert and a young, very young Chris Maurin um, set up shop above a little flower shop and thought that there would be a great need in our culture to study the intersection of e economics and faith, faith and free markets. And so for 25 years, we've had the privilege to do that. So we welcome you. If this is your very first time here, especially welcome to you. Um, we do this a lot now in our new building. We have this wonderful space in which we can do lectures, um, film screenings. Um, we do um, art exhibits now, and now we're actually doing drama. I, have, I can almost assure you that 25 years ago, Father Robert and Chris never thought that we would have drama and art and film along with economics lectures, but all of them are really meant to help our culture understand the necessity for liberty, for freedom, and also for the ability for people to enact their God-given abilities to create goods and services in an economy uh, where people will be served and blessed by the things that they make and the things that they do. So my name is Mike Cook. I am the manager of programs here at Acton Institute. Um, I would like to set up tonight's talk a little bit just by, I, I want to admit right off the bat that there are a lot of people here who are chest, what, what, what do you call yourself, a Trekkie? Not a Trekkie, you're not quite, a Chestertonians, that's it. There's a lot of Chestertonians here who know a ton more about Chesterton than I do or that maybe anybody else does. So for you, this is all going to be basic and it'll probably be boring. But for many of you, you don't know a lot about Chesterton. 
I thought I knew a lot about him, but what I found out today was really fascinating. So before I introduce Mr. Chesterton, I'd like you to tell you a little bit about him. Gilbert Keith Chesterton, a.k.a. G.K. Chesterton, was born May 29th, 1874, in Kensington, London, England. He died, he departed this world, June 14, 1936. He was 62 years old. In this world, he was known as a journalist, a novelist, an essayist. His genres included fantasy and Christian apologetics, not to be confused with each other at all, Catholic apologetics, mystery, and poetry. He was a well-read man. Chesterton was baptized in the church at the age of one month into the Church of England. Though his family themselves were irregularly practicing Unitarians. Now, I have no idea exactly what that means, an irregularly practicing Unitarian. According to his autobiography, as a young man, Chesterton became fascinated with the occult. And along with his brother, Cecil, experimented with what every parent fears, dreads, and loathes, Ouija boards. I didn't know they had Ouija boards back in Chesterton's day. Chesterton was educated at St. Paul's School, then attended the Slade School of Art in order to become an illustrator. The Slade is a department of the University of College of London, where Chesterton also took classes in literature. But he did not complete a degree in either subject. So if there are any mothers or fathers out there, like me, who have children who are not quite making a go of life and college is tough for them. Uh, look what Chesterton did, even with a secondary degree. Chesterton was 27 years old when he married Francis Blog in 1901. The marriage lasted the rest of his life. Chesterton credited Francis with leading him back to Anglicanism, though he later considered Anglicanism to be a, quote, pale imitation he entered full communion with the Roman Catholic Church in 1922. G.K. was a large man. He was six foot four, weighing around 286 pounds. His girth gave rise to a famous anecdote. During the First World War, a lady in London asked why he was not, quote, out at the front. Chesterton replied, Madame, if you go round to the side, you will see that I am. <laughs> On another occasion, he remarked to his friend George Bernard Shaw, he said, to look at you, anyone would think a famine had struck England. Shaw retorted, to look at you, sir, anyone would think you have caused it. Chesterton usually wore a cape and a crumpled hat with a sword stick in his hand and a cigar hanging out of his mouth. He had a tendency to forget where he was supposed to be going. And he would often miss the train that he was supposed to take him from here to there. It is reported that on several occasions, he sent a telegram to his wife, Frances, from some distant and incorrect location, writing such things as, Am I in Market Harborough? Where ought I to be? To which his wife would reply, Home. 
Chesterton wrote around 80 books, several hundred poems, 200 short stories, 4,000 essays, several plays. He was a literary and social critic, historian, playwright, novelist, Catholic theologian, and apologist, a debater, and a mystery writer. Chesterton was equally at ease with literary and social criticism, history, politics, economics, philosophy, and theology. His style is unmistakable, always marked by humility, consistency, paradox, wit, and wonder. His writing remains as timely and as timeless today as when it first appeared, even though much of it was published in throwaway papers. But the question remains, does Chesterton have anything to offer contemporary audiences? Well, Trevin Wax at the Gospel Coalition says this, that G.K. Chesterton remains timeless because he didn't fall for faddish arguments or progress for the sake of progress. He knew truth was timeless. Wax states that Chesterton was the epitome of the joyful Christian and didn't understand boredom. He was too fascinated by the world around him. He once wrote, there are no uninteresting things, only uninterested people. The emotion that infuses all of Chesterton's writing is gratitude, a sign of joy in life, a sense of wonder at even the most mundane gifts that we take for granted. I want to show you just a couple pictures. This is G.K. Chesterton. Anybody want to guess the age? He was 17 years old. This is uh, 1891, 17. And this is him with a cooler haircut. Uh, <laughs> it was, must have been the 60s, like the 1860s or something. He got longer hair. This was in 1909. He was 35 years old. And this is shortly uh, after he had married Francis. Uh, this is 1901. 1901 is when he was married. Here he is uh, at a place that was very familiar to him, at a desk with the inkwell and the pen in hand. This picture shows him and Gennar, uh, George Bernard Shaw and Hilaire uh, Balak, kind of the inklings. And this is a cartoon by Max Beerbaum. <laughs> that begins to show you a little bit of the six foot four, 200 and what did I say? 85, 86, not 85, 86. Here's a beautiful quote Humility is the mother of giants. One sees great things from the valley, only small things from the peak. Humility is the mother of giants. Gratitude, being nearly the greatest of human duties, is also nearly the most difficult. And then this one is pretty darn good. Now I know why he became Catholic. In Catholicism, the pint, the pipe, and the cross can all live together in perfect harmony. <laughs> The pint, the pipe, and the cross. And then this just proves to show you how timeless and how culturally relevant G.K. Chesterton really is. 
you can actually buy G.K. Chesterton children clothing with all of his quotes on them. I believe in getting into hot water. It keeps you clean. So without further ado, I would like to introduce um, G.K. Chesterton, although he was supposed to be standing right back there, but he's, he's probably lost. So Karen, did you see him? He was supposed to be right over here. Well, true to form, G.K. Chesterton is lost. So ladies and gentlemen, let me go find him, and uh, we'll be right back to you. Thank you. Well, I'm sorry I'm late. It always seems that I'm late wherever it is that I'm supposed to be. But I apologize. I wish I could tell you that I was out debating any number of my opponents, but, uh, but I wasn't. I was simply out taking a walk. <clears throat> you see, all of my mental doors open up onto a world that I did not make, ladies and gentlemen. And I have to be aware of that at all times. And so I went for a walk. <clears throat> I wasn't that far away. I heard mention of my wife, Frances. I, might I tell you just a little bit about, about my wedding night? <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> you see, we got to the hotel. I, I, I do have a lecture here. Let me put it down. I, I may get to it eventually, but uh, uh, let me, dear, yes. I was uh, saying that I uh, went for a walk when we got to the hotel and uh, decided uh, that I could do that. Uh, all kinds of wonderful things in this world. The world doesn't suffer from a want of wonders. It, suffers from a want of wonder. So yes, I wanted to see where I was, and off I went. And as you might imagine, I got hopelessly lost. <laughs> and by the time I found my way back to the hotel and back to Frances, she was sound asleep. <laughs> that is the story of my wedding night. I, I didn't think I could even awaken her to apologize. And, in fact, I have been apologizing to her ever since. <laughs> and uh, now here I am tonight to give a lecture, and no doubt I'll have reasons to apologize to you as well. <laughs> now, yes, I, I was simply taking a walk. I, I, I wish I could tell you I was debating Mr. Shaw. Yes, I, that, that was one occasion when I was actually on time. I was standing at the podium when he walked in looking even more gaunt than usual. And I made my comment, and he got me back. I must say that. He got me back. You know, Shaw embodied any number of things that I cannot abide. But he was my friend, really. Yes, he was certainly a, a, a political enemy in a sense, but he was my friend. Although, you know, at one point, I'm going to talk tonight a bit about the family. He tried to convince Francis to divorce me. He didn't think I was taking proper care of her, financially speaking. Isn't that interesting? Shaw, the socialist, was at heart a capitalist and wanting to make money all of the time. And I, not a socialist, wasn't paying enough attention, he thought. 
to making money for poor Francis. Well, as you know, I did not divorce her. But what did he embody that I cannot abide? Imperialism? Feminism? Socialism? Vegetarianism. <laughs> Do you know my poem, by the way, The Logical Vegetarian? You will find me drinking rum like a sailor in a slum. You will find me drinking beer like a Bavarian. You will find me drinking gin in the lowest sort of inn because I am a happy vegetarian. <laughs> so I cleared that inn of wine and tried to climb a sign and sought to hail the constable as Marion. So he bowled me in the beak and refused to let me speak because I was a rigid vegetarian. <laughs> oh, I once knew a Dr. Gluck, and his nose it had a hook, and his attitudes were anything but Aryan. So I gave him all the pork that I had upon my fork, because you see, I am a vegetarian. <laughs> no more the milk of cows shall pollute my private house and the milk of the wild mares of the barbarian. And I will stick to port and sherry. For they are so very, very, so very, very, very vegetarian. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'll get to the lecture, but since I've given you one poem, might I give you just one more? I should be a heathen. I'd praise the purple vine. My slaves would dig the vineyard, and I would drink the wine. But Higgins is a heathen whose slaves grow lean and gray that he may drink some tepid milk exactly twice a day. Now, if I should be a heathen, I'd crown theirs curls. I'd, I'd fill my life with love affairs, my house with dancing girls. But Higgins is a heathen, and to lecture rooms is forced. But his aunts, who are not married, demand to be divorced. <laughs> now, if I should be a heathen, I'd send my armies forth and and drag behind my chariots the chieftains of the north. But Higgins is a heathen who drives his dreary quill that lends the poor that funny cash that makes them poorer still. Now if I should die a heathen, why I'd pile my pyre on high and, and in a great red whirlwind go roaring to the sky. But Higgins did die a heathen and a far richer man than I. And yet they put him in an oven and baked him like a pie. <laughs> now it's not for me to ponder this riddle that I write of why this poor old heathen should sin without delight. Now it's up to you to ponder now that I am finally done the lot of he who lacked the faith and would not have any fun. Yes, the song of the strange ascetic it is. Oh, yes, I wish I were debating any number of the enemies of the church. Uh, let me think. Oh, yes, um, you know the argument. I've had it thrust at me any number of times where someone, one of my opponents, will come up to me in, in the middle of a debate and say, Mr. Chesterton, your church is responsible for this war, that violence, this crusade, whatever. What do you have to say for yourself? Well, I say, why, naturally. What did you expect from fallen man? Of course, my church has committed wrongs. But the unique thing about my church is that we admit them. Yes, we admit them. Others think we should wed ourselves to the world. Yes, we should follow what the world is doing. 
Ladies and gentlemen, whenever the church weds itself to the world, the church can be sure one day to be widowed by the world. Yes. Now, I don't want a church that moves with the world. I want a church that moves the world. Besides, how do we know which way the world is going? It may very well be going in the wrong direction, following this fad or this fancier, this fashion. No, the world doesn't progress. It wobbles. It wobbles this way and it wobbles that way. And, and besides, how do you know when it progresses if you don't have a standard against which to judge it? You must have a standard. And that standard must not be the calendar. It must be a creed. We must judge things not by whether we like the day before yesterday or the day after tomorrow. We must judge things by whether they are good and useful or not. In that sense, I am a reactionary, and I am not a child of my age. Really, the church is the only thing, I think, that saves me from the degraded slavery of being a child of my age. Oh, any numbers of the enemies of the church, for example, have told me or asked me again and again, you don't really believe, Gilbert, in Adam and Eve, do you? Of course I do. It's common sense. Besides, it gives us the image of the perfect man in the eyes of God. Yes, the perfect man. Not that we can become that. And not Nietzsche or Shaw's Superman. But we have the image of the perfect man in the eyes of God, as we do not have for other creatures. For example, what would you say if you were about to see a fellow getting ready to consume his tenth whiskey? Well, I would trust that you would slap him on the back and say to him, stop it, be a man. But if you were to witness a crocodile about to consume his 10th explorer, you wouldn't pound that crocodile on the back and say, stop it, be a crocodile, would you? Because, of course, the crocodile was being a crocodile. Now, the Mars is the only religion. It is a revealed religion which tells us that omnipotence did not make God complete. That God, in order to be holy God, must have been just as much of a rebel as a king. Yes. Besides, it's the only religion that has added courage to the list of the virtues of the Creator. Courage. I have been accused on any number of occasions, and I will plead guilty to talking in paradoxes. And courage itself when you think about it, it is a paradox, isn't it? What does it mean? It means it means a desire to live, accompanied by a willingness to die. Yes. Here's one more for you. Before I, I promise you, you are here for a lecture, and I will get to the lecture in short order. But yes, the paradox that I think is most compelling to me is this, that it is only since I have known orthodoxy that I have truly achieved mental emancipation. It's only since I have known orthodoxy that I have achieved true intellectual freedom. And more than that, it's only since I have known orthodoxy that I have come to experience joy. I know modern man says that joy 
is the religion of pagans. Whereas sorrow is the religion of Christians. But to me, at the heart of paganism is pure sorrow. And at the heart of Christianity is pure joy. Joy may be the small publicity of the pagan, but it is the gigantic secret of the Christian. And why are we Christians so joyful? Here's a paradox for you. We are joyful, are we not, because we believe in original sin. <laughs> really, the more longer I live, the more I am convinced that the doctrine of original sin is the only doctrine of Christianity that you really can prove. <laughs> yes. And it gives us the only joyful version of life that there is. It says, it says that the wrong use of the will may be righted. It says our natures are made for beatitude. Really, the good news of the gospel is the good news of original sin. And we are joyful as pagans. As pagans are not. <laughs> you know, many of my contemporaries have said to me, it's terrible that today the young are pagans. Do you know something? In truth, I wish they were pagans. Because you see, a pagan had a sense that wine wasn't just wine. It was a god. And corn wasn't just corn. It was a goddess. The pagans understood that there was something about this world that was more real than realism. But I fear that the modern youth of today are so materialistic that they don't even have that sense. I wish they were pagans. Then there might be some better hope that they will become Christian at some point. But of course, we can hope, and it is a great Christian virtue, hope, isn't it? I much prefer the Christian virtues to the pagan virtues. And there are good pagan virtues. Justice is a good virtue, a pagan virtue. And what does it mean? It means you should give someone his due or temperance. Temperance is another virtue. It says we should decide what should be the limits to something and do our best to adhere to it. There is nothing wrong with that. But the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and charity are much broader, much deeper, much more important. What is faith if not believing in the impossible or it's no virtue at all? What is hope if not hoping when everything is hopeless or it's no virtue at all? And what is charity if not pardoning the unpardonable or it is no virtue at all? Well, I'm here tonight to lecture on your country, which I visited in 1921 and again in 1930, and vowed at that time I would never come back until prohibition had ended. <laughs> and since it has, I have returned. Although I must tell you, in 1930, when I was lecturing not all that far from here at Notre Dame, I spent the fall of 1930 lecturing at Notre Dame. And I almost became a convert to prohibition. You might wonder why. Virtually every evening I was invited out to dinner to a professor's home. And virtually every evening 
that professor served wine and or beer. You see, they had been making it in their own homes. And then I thought to myself, why, maybe your Congress is smarter than I had given it credit for being. In fact, maybe your Congress should start passing laws banning the making and manufacturing and selling of jellies and jams and sweaters and woolens and mittens. And then mothers would start making them in their own homes again. So I almost did become a convert to prohibition. <laughs> Thank goodness I was not asked my opinion of prohibition when I applied for a passport to come to your country in 1921. Instead, I was asked if I was an anarchist. <laughs> it was right on the form. I didn't know what to put in, so I looked at the second question. The second question asked me if I was a polygamist. <laughs> well, I thought of putting down not so lucky. <laughs> or not so stupid, <laughs> or that the 47 women with me were all my secretaries. <laughs> but again, I left it blank. And then I read the third question. It asked me if I favored overthrowing the government of the United States by force of arms. <laughs> well, I, I thought I couldn't possibly leave three in a row blank. I had to answer at least one of them, so I picked the third question. And I wrote the following that I didn't know whether I favored overthrowing your government by force of arms, but I would much prefer to answer such a question at the end of my journey rather than the beginning. <laughs> and you know, I, speaking of polygamy for just a minute, your president, Theodore Roosevelt, not long ago, was your president. There was a great controversy in your United States Senate over seating a senator from Utah, you might remember his name, Reed Smoot. The tariff of a few years ago was named in part after him. You see, the Democrats didn't want to seat him because he had been a polygamist. He wasn't any longer, but that's what he had been, and they wouldn't seat him. And members of the press asked Roosevelt what he thought of this. And you know what he said? I love this. He said, I would rather have in the United States Senate a polygamist who doesn't polygamize than a monogamist who doesn't monogamize. <laughs> well, I'm here to talk about the family. To be born into a family is the most terribly experience of one's, terribly wonderful experience of one's life, isn't it? It's like I should think it's like climbing down a chimney into any house at random and trying to get on as well as possible with the people inside. Isn't that what each one of us really began to do on the day that we were born? Of course it is. And that's why it's so fairly romantic. It's romantic because it's so completely arbitrary. Oh, I know the enemies of the family and they are legion like to tell us that the family is an uncongenial institution. I say the family is a good institution, and precisely because it can be, on many different occasions, so completely and thoroughly uncongenial. That's really the point of it in part, isn't it? Yes. Oh, yes, sir. To be born into a family is 
terribly romantic, far more romantic than falling in love. Because you see, in one sense, we're prepared for that. But the moment we climb down that chimney into a family, we enter a world of romance and wonder. Yes, romance and wonder, which we could never anticipate, never prepare for. Beatrice? Beatrice, can you hear me, Beatrice? Sometimes I can't hear you. Question, Beatrice. Why did you have to die? You were only eight at the time. And I was but three. And father, father, why did Beatrice die? And why did you, the man with the golden key, choose to shut yourself up? Why did you turn her picture to the wall and sell her a few possessions? And father, why did you instruct mother and me never to mention her name again? Why, father? Why? Why, Beatrice? Why? Two years later, my brother Cecil climbed down our chimney. And for most of the next 35 years, we argued. <laughs> my first response when he was brought to the house was to take a look at him and say, this is wonderful. Now I shall have an audience. <laughs> but yes, we did argue. We argued about everything. But never once did we quarrel. Quarrel, you see, should never get in the way of a good argument, of which we had plenty. But we didn't argue about domesticity, about the virtues of domesticity. Nor did we disagree that the modern world was running away from domesticity, fleeing domesticity. It's really, it's really been a drift, not a drive. As they were all following a fashion, not even ever following a heresy. As if they were all sheep, they were all sheep. We're not even following an evil shepherd. We're following, more often than not, the state. And without the family, ladies and gentlemen, we are all helpless before the state. I don't know if there's anything more important than I can, that I can say this evening than that. Without the family, we are helpless before the state. Yes, we are in the process, I fear. And Cecil, before he died at the end of World War I, was fearing this as well, that we are all sheep. Yes, I, I know. Real sheep. Real sheep. A little dog can drive all those sheep. But where is that dog driving them? He's either driving them into the field or he's driving them home. But where are we being driven? We're being driven into the arms of the state, it seems to me. Oh, I know there are those who say that state officials can make very good parents if you pay them enough. Yes, they do say that, don't they? But I also believe that there is a God in heaven who created a world in which there were always to be two people who would do out of love by way of raising their children. It's also said, of course, that raising children is boring. Really. 
I believe that same God in heaven created a world in which there would be two, two parents who would never be bored by the antics of the child. And who would pay little attention to experts. The modern world is quite overrun with experts, each one of whom is much more of an aristocrat than the aristocrat of old, who merely thought he knew how to live well. Whereas the modern expert is someone who claims to know better. For most things in life, I should think we are better off ignoring experts and going back to the principle behind the jury system. You see, questions of guilt or innocence are really too important to be left to experts. If we want a library cataloged or a bank audited or a solar system discovered, we can turn to experts. But if we want something truly important done, such as determining guilt or innocence, what do we do but gather together 12 people who happen to be standing about at the moment? The same thing was done, if I remember correctly, by the founder of Christianity. <laughs> yes, I, I heard an expert, a socialist, a lady socialist at that, give a lecture not long ago in which she said, we must take care of other people's children as if they were our own. That's what's wrong with the world. That's the exact formula of what's wrong with the world. We must take care of other people's children as if they were our own. Even the Bolsheviks have discovered that the family is a real institution. After a prolonged and extravagant experience, the Bolsheviks have discovered something, that the family is a real institution, and moreover, that there is no substitute for it. I wonder when our modern industrial world will make the same discovery. Well, you have been patient, waiting for a lecture, so let me make an attempt. I, I call this lecture at large in America. I'm rather pleased to know that there is something large enough that I can still hide behind. And I must tell you in all honesty, I'm hiding behind something else as well. I'm hiding behind the pose of a lecturer. No doubt you will discover that I am an imposter all too soon. But let me at least make an attempt at doing what you have come here to hear, a lecture. Let me begin by turning to someone who was never an imposter. The individual I have in mind is not anyone I met on my travels here, but he is surely someone I felt the presence of. And on more than one occasion, especially when I visited one of your small towns, I'm speaking of Abraham Lincoln. As far as I am concerned, Mr. Lincoln is the best representative of your past and of your future, I trust as well. Whenever I lingered long enough in one of your small towns, Lincoln's presence there only intensified. Of course, sophisticated Europeans dismiss American small towns as dull and uninteresting places. Now that I think about it, supposedly sophisticated Americans do the same thing. People like Sinclair Lewis. Now, if I am not a lecturer, I must also tell you I am not a sophisticated European either. Therefore, it should almost go without saying that I do not find your small towns dull 
and uninteresting places. How could I possibly think such a thing when I have just told you that Lincoln came from such a place? I know, many Americans dismiss Lincoln as a simple-minded dunce or, or a village atheist, but he wasn't either one. What he was, really, beyond anything else, was a common man who became a great democratic leader. In part, he was such a leader because he never condescended to the common man. How could he have been condescending? After all, he knew that he had a streak of something common buried within him. To be sure, Lincoln's greatness was based on more than that. He was also a wise man. Have you ever read his address to temperance reformers? He was barely 30 at the time. And yet he revealed great wisdom in that speech in which he warned his fellow reformers against, against themselves. Now keep in mind that Lincoln himself abstained from alcoholic drink. And yes, he sympathized with the whole temperance cause. Knowing that, you might be tempted to think that he delivered that speech to warn them against the evils of drink. But they didn't need that kind of warning. They needed to be warned of their own potential for fanaticism, to guard against their own fanaticism, to guard against the prideful fanaticism of, of, of temperance reformers and other, of others of that sort. And I should think he was right to issue such a warning. Pride, you see, is the poison in every other vice, isn't it? Oh, yes, people can be proud of their heroes, and a man can be proud of his wife. But it's something else again to be proud of one's own accomplishments, one's own virtues. It wasn't long ago I was at a dinner party, and a fellow at the end of the table, I overheard him saying to the person next to him that a man can't believe in himself. What can he believe in? And I turned to the young lady next to me, and I said, I can tell you what he can believe in. He can believe in original sin. That's what he can believe in. Really, to believe in yourself is a dangerous belief, a horrible belief, a superstitious belief. Worse than that, it's a weakness, perhaps even a sin, maybe even the original sin. <laughs> now, I'm not here tonight to accuse that fellow of being a sinner. Far be it from me to do that. But he is in danger of committing the sin of pride. And here again, I should think the prohibitionists are wrong. Most of the evil in this world does not result from staring into the bottom of a beer glass. Most of the evil results from staring longingly into a looking glass. So yes, I did want to praise Lincoln for warning the temperance reformers against fanaticism, against the evils of pride. If only Lincoln had been on hand in the 1920s to warn us against prohibition. <laughs> Such les lessons, uh, legislation, I should say, suggests to me that you are apparently less a nation of immigrants than you are a nation of lunatics. <laughs> to say that a man has a right to vote but not a right to choose what to have with his dinner is like saying that a man has a right to his hat but not a right to his head. <laughs> well, well. Prohibition has come and gone. So let me return briefly to Lincoln and to another matter that generated no small amount 
of fanaticism. That, of course, would be the issue of slavery. Once again, Lincoln proved to be, I think, a wise man. For most of his life, including for much of his presidency, he regarded slavery as an intolerable wrong. But an intolerable wrong that for a certain length of time had to be tolerated. As I look back at more recent American history, I could say something similar about the version of capitalism as practiced by John D. Rockefeller and others like him. Well, yes, perhaps intolerable. It seems to me that it too had to be tolerated. Just as Lincoln was a wise political leader of his time, any wise political leader who came after him would have managed to endure what capitalism had become later in the 19th century. In all likelihood, such a leader would have praised what capitalism had produced without defending all of its practices. And he certainly, this wise political leader, would not have called businessmen brutes because he would have understood that few businessmen are brutes. And by the same token, he would have regarded some of the enemies of capitalism as crude and inhuman, just as Lincoln regarded John Brown as crude and inhuman. This note of comparison demands that I return briefly to slavery and Lincoln. Listen to what he said when he was a very young man. He said, if slavery is not wrong, then nothing is wrong. There, of course, is great moral clarity in a statement like that. But he always combined moral clarity with practical patience. Yes, Lincoln realized very early in his life that slavery was a great evil. But we must keep in mind that he did not move to destroy slavery, to destroy that evil until very late in his presidency, which also happened to be at a point that was very late in your terrible, but somehow terribly necessary, civil war. Now, speaking of that war, might I risk wrath on the part of some Michiganders by saying to you that the defeat of the Confederacy was not entirely, uh, its defeat was not entirely a bad thing. Yes, I agree that the Confederacy was a lost cause. Not only that, I agree that the cause of slavery was a lost cause that deserved to lose. But I would not agree that everything about a lost cause deserves such a fate. In fact, there might be some elements of a lost cause that deserve to be found. I'm thinking of the agrarian elements of your southern society. And yes, I'm also thinking about the suspicion, the suspicion of governmental power that resides there. Yes, yes, if there was a time when southern states left the Union, seceded from the Union because of their defense of slavery. There might be a time when my friend Hilaire Belloc's Servile State, you may have read his book, The Servile State, warning us against the dangers of an overpowerful state, the dangers of the despotism of such a state. It may be the case at some point in the future where the South will secede to avoid slavery. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm not a futurist at all. But there are elements that I should think we must want to defend 
about the South. To be sure, Lincoln was right to believe that there really wasn't a Northern nation and a Southern nation, but rather one American nation. He was wise about this as well, as he moved near the end of his life to quickly reunite the country, the North and the South, to get the South into the Union again as quickly and painlessly as possible. While it is tempting to compare my England's treatment of the Irish to your treatment of the South, I do think there is at least one crucial difference. We English have conquered Ireland again and again, but we have never come close to converting it. You have had one Gettysburg, we have had many Gettysburgs, and yet we still have no union. Worse than that, we still have rebellion. And speaking of rebellion, we are not too many years here in the 1930s removed from the Bolshevik rebellion. And any number of friends of mine have tried to tell me that this is the wave of the future. I don't think it is at all. Not at all. In fact, I think it will not survive. You see, it runs against the thrust of human nature. We all want to own a piece of land. We all want to have a home to call our own. We don't want the state to own everything. This is why I call myself a distributist. Property is like muck. It should be spread around. Bolshevism will not last. I, I'm not a politician. I, I uh, uh, created a distributist league in 1926 in memory and part of my dead brother Cecil. Yes, I did want to create that league to promote distributism, but not in any political parties. And politics should be left to the politicians. They're the only people dull enough not to be bored by it. <laughs> Either property is good for man or it is not. And if it is good for man, then it is good for every man. And if it is not, then let us all instantly become courageous communists. Every man should have a chance to have a garden of his own. Have a chance to plant things of his own to wander through his garden. Yes, that very much is at the heart of what I mean by distributism. It seems to me that the real dangerous revolution that we face is not from Bolshevism. The most dangerous revolution is not in Moscow, but it is in Manhattan. And it is the sexual revolution that is upon us. Because you see, of course, unlike Bolshevism, the sexual revolution feeds right into our fallen human nature. It is consistent with our human nature. And it is therefore much more dangerous. Every young boy and girl must learn two things about sex. They must learn that it is beautiful. And they must learn that it is dangerous. Every healthy society, every decent society throughout history has put restrictions on sex. It's not necessary that the restrictions be reasonable. It's just necessary that they restrict. Yes, that really is the beginning of all true passion. So those who say that sex should be treated as nothing more, any different from eating and sleeping and walking and running, of course, this is absurd. 
It requires a special purification, a special dedication. I might debate people over this, but I will not debate people over pornographers by the idea of someone exciting a sexual in instinct that is already too powerful on the face of it. It's a scoundrel, and he must be stamped upon with one's heel, not argued about with one's intellect. Yes, the moment we turn sex into just some other bodily function, it threatens to become our master. And if it becomes our master, it becomes a tyrant. And so, yes, I do believe that that, that is the revolution that we must guard against by all accounts. Now, Manhattan. In America, there is nothing quite like Manhattan. And on Manhattan, there is nothing quite like Broadway. What a glorious garden of wonders Broadway would be for anyone lucky enough not to be able to read. When I first saw all the advertisements, I wasn't worried. After all, it seemed to me that only soft-headed, sentimental, servile people could possibly be affected by them. Certainly, hard-headed, humorous, independent Americans would get the joke. But then it occurred to me that you Americans were probably more hard-headed, more humorous, more independent in the 19th century. Those Americans surely would have gotten the joke. But will more soft-headed, sentimental, servile 20th century Americans get the joke? I wonder, and I worry. If modern Americans do fail to get the joke, I wonder and worry about the future of your democratic ideal. I know that these advertisements are considered to be necessary for economic progress. But is that progress necessarily consistent with your democratic ideal? Surely it is fair, even for an outsider such as myself, to ask such questions. And they especially must be asked because your country was founded on an ideal. England, my country, and Germany, like you, industrial countries. But they are different because of your democratic ideal. They do not have the same ideal. In truth, yours is the only country with the soul of a church. And that's because yours is the only country that was founded on a creed, a creed grounded in your Declaration of Independence. Now, now don't, don't misunderstand what I am about to say, but I would like to propose comparing your founding document to the Spanish Inquisition. This may seem to be to you something less than a compliment to you and to your Declaration and to your Constitution, but oddly enough, I should think it does involve a truth, and still more oddly, perhaps, I think it does involve a compliment. You see, both the American founding and the Spanish Inquisition involve creeds. Yes. Now, your creed was initially set forth with dogmatic and even theological lucidity in your Declaration of Independence. That document is perhaps the only piece of practical politics that is also sound theoretical politics, as well as great literature. It enunciates that all men are equal in their claim to justice, that government exists to give them that justice, and that your government's authority is, for that reason, just. 
Your declaration certainly does condemn anarchism. And by inference, it also condemns atheism, does it not? After all, it clearly names the creator as the ultimate authority, meaning the authority from whom those equal rights are derived. Of course, nobody expects a modern political system to proceed logically in the application of such dogmas. And when it comes to the matter of God and government, it is naturally God whose claim is taken more lightly. But my point, I think, stands. There is a creed, and if in the final analysis it is not a creed about a divine being, it is at least a creed about human beings. Now, to be sure, we sinful human beings are not divine. In our desire for the things of this world, we sometimes forget all about our true reason for being here. But we do have ideals. Ironically, you have become prosperous because of your ideals. Nay, you are better because of your democratic ideal. But that very ideal has increasingly come under siege in modern America. It wasn't that long ago when your President Harding called for a return to normalcy. Now, please understand, I'm in favor of turning back the clock for any number of reasons. That's why I call myself a reactionary. Yes, I try to judge things that I want to defend and build upon, such as Christ and his church, by a creed, or things that I want to promote, like a fairer and wider distribution of property. Yes, I will fight for those as well on the basis of a creed, but not on the basis of a calendar. I know it's very hard to fight against people who think that they know what they want. But only if those, only those who can fight back best are those who know that they want something else. You see, I think both progressives and conservatives make the same mistake here by judging things by a calendar, not a creed. Progressives are always looking toward the future. What do conservatives do but see it as their task to conserve progressive reforms? That makes no sense to me. There are things that must be turned back. You know Harding's line. He called for a return to normalcy, didn't he? Now, please understand, yes, I do believe in returning to normalcy, but, but if you're thinking about, or if Harding was thinking about returning to the late 19th century, I would submit to you that he was proposing that we turn, return to an abnormalcy, which is to say the kind of capitalism that Rockefeller and others practiced at that time. I'm referring to that kind of capitalism, to a version of capitalism that in my mind was never accustomed, for men never grew accustomed to it. And it wasn't really conservative, because it conserved nothing. And it certainly wasn't normal. What it was, was a problem. And I would submit to you that those who refuse to admit that there might be a capitalist problem are likely to get a Bolshevik solution. I must say, I do worry about another ism. This would be commercialism especially commercialism without rational purpose and rational limits. Commercialism devoid and divorced from Christian values and Christian beliefs. 
Perhaps your Manhattan skyscraper is accurately named because it seems to have no limits. Towering in insolence, it seems to scrape the stars off the American sky, the very heaven of the American spirit. All of, all of this leads me sometimes to wonder if there's something in your water that has resulted in your being born drunk. Perhaps, perhaps I should think you need a little beer and wine to sober you up. Consuming such spirits might help you master the wonderful art of doing less, or perhaps the even more wonderful art of doing nothing. Now, of course, advocates of prohibition didn't agree with me on this. But to me, prohibition was a retreat from liberty. To me, it was a departure from your declaration of independence. I can't imagine Thomas Jefferson entertaining the idea of promoting prohibition. What was the point of Jeffersonian democracy if not to give the law more general control over public matters while giving ordinary people and all people, citizens, a more general liberty over private matters? Personal liberties should be the last liberties that we lose. Instead, they seem to be the first liberties that we sacrifice. And it really seems to me that, uh, that Catholicism is the religion of liberty because it is the religion of free will. Every other religion, virtually every other religion, it seems to me, preaches some version of fatalism. Calvinism did, Islam does, and the modern secular religions of Darwinism and Marxism, Freudianism, all preach fatalism of one sort or another, rather than liberty. Speaking of Freud, I have another little poem for you, if I might. The well-informed pronounce it Freud, whether to cavil or applaud. The ill-informed pronounce it Freud, but I pronounce it fraud. I'm, see, I'm running near the end of my time here, and I, I must get to a subject that uh, requires, before I speak about it, that I, that I take just a brief little rest, if you might, because I'm likely to be savagely attacked once we get into this subject that is related to your country and, and my country as well. And this will help me get into the mood if I if I might. So please uh, bear with me for just a moment while I summon my strength and take a little rest. Thank you. Oh dear. Oh dear. Huh. Well, what day is it? Oh, it must, must be election day. <laughs> Every day these days is election day. And what should be the topic of the hour? Oh dear. Francis! Francis, you have my schedule, Francis? Let me see here. That was yesterday's lecture. Now that won't do. Morals. I can talk about morals, especially the sorry state of modern morals. <laughs> but where to begin? 
Where did he get? The only thing worse than the modern weakening of major morals, I should think, would be the modern strengthening of minor morals. Today it is thought to be in good taste to accuse someone of bad taste, but not to accuse anyone of bad morals. <laughs> oh, we can say people have uh, bad habits, yes, we can do that. Uh, in this day and age of eugenics, we can say people, uh, people have bad genes. Uh, Yes, we can say they make bad choices. Isn't that a good one? Yes, they make bad choices. But bad morals? Never. Now, now, what would I do if I were a good modern man of good modern minor morals? Well, I'd, I'd get up, wouldn't I? And after getting up, I would, uh, I would eat something healthy, something god-awful, such as grape nuts. And then I'd wash my hands as cleanliness isn't next to godliness today. Cleanliness has become godliness. So is eating food that is thought to be good for us. I think I should have another toffee instead. I know modern man says in the name of, of good modern minor morals, says that, uh, that uh, the way to health is care. To me, the mark of a truly healthy man, I should think ought to be carelessness. <laughs> we ought to take exercise, not because we are too fat, but because we love horses and high mountains and risks in general, and because we love them for their own sake. Just as we ought to eat because we have a good appetite to satisfy, not because we want a sound body to worship. So far as I am concerned, there is more goodness and simplicity, more honesty and health in the person who eats beefsteak on impulse than in the person who eats grape nuts on principle. Eating for health is just one more modern minor moral. And so is getting up early in the morning. After all, who rises with the rooster and why should we admire them? Misers, I presume, get up early in the morning and, and burglars, I've been told, get up the night before. <laughs> I say let people get up whenever they wish. And once they are up, let them eat whatever, whenever and wherever they wish. All bad habits, you say? I say then. Something quite alarming in this modern world of ours about the growth of good habits. <laughs> Besides, the things that should be constant in our lives are our principles, not our habits. <laughs> but the modern man has it the other way about his principles, such as they are always changing. Whereas up and out the bedtime and his lunchtime and things like this never change. Anyone can get used to rising at the same boring early hour every morning. The question is, why should we? Lying in bed would have been altogether perfect experience if only I had a colored pencil long enough to draw pictures on the ceiling. Then great art could be performed at the same time. Of course, lying in bed or sitting down is itself a great art. And if anyone should perform this art with me, they must be sure to do so for no reason at all. And when they get up, they must be sure to do so for no reason at all. And now that I am up, I suppose I should have a reason for being up. Now that I am up, it feels very much like lunchtime. And if it feels like lunchtime, then I should think it must be lunchtime. Francis, Francis, my lunch. Oh, if the feminists could hear me say that, how they would object mightily. 
At least I hope so, because you see, I object to much of modern feminism. And here's why I'm about to be attacked. <laughs> and the rest of it I find amusing. Think what the emancipation of women has come to mean in England, where countless young girls rose up all at once to shout, I will not be dictated to, and promptly became stenographers. <laughs> well, perhaps that should be the topic of the hour, isn't it? Modern feminism. Modern women defend their place of work as they once defended domesticity. They fight for desk and typewriter as they once fought for hearth and home. Which, of course, is why women do office work so well. And why they ought not to do it at all. And why is that? Because the emancipation of women has come to mean little more than their exploitation. I agree with those feminists who rail against the shameful tyranny to be found in offices and factories throughout England. But there is something that still divides us. They want to destroy the womanhood, whereas I want to destroy the tyranny. They want to remove women from what they consider to be the dullness and triviality of the home. I will concede that domestic life is hard, but I will never concede that it is dull or trivial. I may pity poor Mrs. Jones for the hugeness of her task, but I will never pity her for the smallness of it. How can it be a small career to be a mother who is everything to someone, and yet thought to be a large career, to be a, a, a bank teller who is the same thing to everyone? For that matter, how can it be a large career to be a teacher who explains the rule of three to other people's children, and yet dismissed as a small career to be a mother who tells one's own children about the universe. I suppose I've gone too far there, haven't I? Surely women belong in classrooms as students or teachers. But surely women do not belong hovering over looms in textile mills, or in stenographic pools, or in voting booths. <laughs> Whenever I put that into a lecture, the gasp is audible. And I hear people say, he didn't say that, did he? Oh, yes, I did. But then I would hasten to add, just because I disapprove of votes for women does not mean that I disapprove of thrones or crowns for them. There's a far stronger case to be made for making the suffragist a despot than for making her a mere voter. And surely it was a mistake to grant women the vote in the name of something called equality. Well, of course men and women are equal in the sight of God. But they're all so different. And out of those differences, wonderful things once came. You see, women once tempered the gravity of politics as they tempered the gravity of golf. <laughs> that is, by reminding men not to be so solemn about things that are slightly unreal. But all of that is gone now. And it's all the men's fault. You see, we told women that the vote was of frightful importance. <laughs> we just never imagined that they would believe us. <laughs> But they did. And as a result, a terrible thing has happened to those of us who are masculine. We won. <laughs> yes. But before the victory, before in England, before the suffragists got the right to vote, there were stories in the newspapers of suffragists punching policemen. I read this and was terribly amused. They were doing the one thing that the policemen had no reason to fear. 
Yes, of course, every real man is frightened to death of a woman's turn of her head. That can frighten him like a dynamite explosion. Every real man is afraid of a woman's tongue and of her silence. Afraid of her sanity and insanity. Afraid of her collapse and of her endurance. Yes, the one thing, however, that a real man is not afraid of is her deltoid muscle. And there they were, punching policemen. Yes, yes now, now in England, because of the suffragism, women no longer wear skirts or petticoats or other such badges of femininity. They think that such dress reveals female submission. On the contrary, it seems to me that it reveals female dignity. After all, what do men wear when they wish to appear safely impressive as kings or judges or priests? They wear not just skirts and petticoats, but long flowing robes of great female dignity. The whole world is under petticoat government, because even the men wear petticoats when they truly wish to govern. But look what else has happened. Uh, uh, divorce reform, uh, uh, birth control. As far as I can tell, birth control in England has come to mean fewer and fewer births and less and less control. <laughs> or in a, your country, I'm now being told that new people in some states may be divorced for something called incompatibility of temperament. Incompatibility of temperament. Uh, don't you Americans understand that's the basis for a marriage, not a divorce? I have lived a very long life, and I have known many a happy marriage. Not a one of them was compatible. That's the whole point of it, isn't it? Is a good marriage possible? Of course. Especially, especially, my last point here, especially if it takes place at a moment of exaggerated tenderness. You see, the sexes are really like two stubborn pieces of iron, and if they are to be successfully welded together, it must be while they are still red hot. Every man, every woman must learn that her husband-to-be is a selfish beast. Because, of course, every man is a selfish beast, at least by the standards of the woman. But let her learn that about him while she's still wonderfully in love. And every man must come to terms with the fact that his wife-to-be is sensitive to the point of madness. Because, of course, every woman is madly sensitive, at least by the standards of the man. But let him learn that she is mad, while her madness is still more intriguing to him than anyone else's sanity. Well, on that note, I think I should be getting... A neighbor was asking me where I was going when I was getting ready to come here. And I told him why to Beaconsfield, where I live, of course. And he looked at me and said, well, Gilbert, you're in Beaconsfield. I said, oh, yes, but I can't really see my garden. I can't really see my study unless I go somewhere else on occasion. Paradox. The whole object of foreign travel is not to set foot on foreign soil, but to return to your home as though it was foreign soil. Yes. Travel, if it's worth anything at all, narrows the mind. Yes, there's the paradox. It doesn't broaden the mind. It narrows the mind. Oh, I've been to Poland and Palestine. I've been to France and Germany, and I've seen great sights there. 
But all the while, what I am truly seeking is Beaconsfield. Sometimes I think the strangest country I have ever visited is England. And lest I forget how wonderfully strange it is, I think I should be getting home. And sometimes I think the strangest place I have ever lived is Beaconsfield. And lest I forget how deliciously strange it is, I think I should be getting home. Which way, I wonder, is it to Beaconsfield? Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's not food or wine, but water. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Dr. Chesterton, thank you. GK, I should say, <laughs> Gilbert. Uh, I, I have the privilege really now to unmask GK Chesterton and introduce to you the man behind uh, our performer tonight. This is Dr. John uh, Chuck Chalberg. He is a teacher, no doubt, of history at Normandale Community College. He performs many different historical figures, including, amongst others, George Orwell, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Branch Rickey, I've been told, Branch yes. Rickey as well. He has published a biography on Emma Goldman as well as dual biography of Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson. He's a frequent writer contributing to the National Review, Commentary, The Weekly Standard, Crisis, Touchstone, and the new Oxford Review. Uh, Dr. Chalberg received his BA from Regis College and both his MA and PhD in history from the University of Minnesota. So once again, can we Thank Dr. Chalberg. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. It, it, was, uh, it was in March of 2013 that I began my work at the Acton Institute. And this is a true story. The very, the, amongst the very first emails that I opened on my very first week here was an email by, by Chuck saying, a little while ago, Father Robert Sirico promised me that I could come back to the Acton Institute. <laughs> and it's been over a year now that we've been working together to, to make tonight happen. And I just want to say thank you. And I am so glad that we were able to make tonight work because it was extremely illuminating for all of us. So thank you very much. Well, thank you as well. Yeah. Thank you as well. Um, thank you. So we... Uh, we have an opportunity now to ask some questions. So if you have any questions that you think G.K. Chesterton should be asked, you can certainly ask Gilbert. Or if you would like to ask Dr. Chalberg a question, you can ask him. I th this is going to be interesting we'll see what how happens. he goes back and <laughs> forth. Uh, so I, I have a microphone. So if anybody would like uh, to ask a question, uh, we've got some time. Otherwise, uh, if there aren't any questions, there are uh, pl there's plenty of food and plenty of drink still available. So uh, just raise your hand, and we'll get, you, uh, get the mic. I understand you were born the same year as Winston Churchill was born. Yes. Were you friends? He was a writer. You were a writer. He was a prolific writer himself. Um, but you see, I am, I am a little Englander. I am not really an imperialist. I know the, the imperialists have a, have a song, and I, uh, you perhaps know it, I can't sing. 
Britannia, Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Sometimes when I think about it, Britannia doesn't so much rule the waves as wave the rules. And, 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 and Churchill has been known to do that. And I, I, I don't, the, the whole notion of having an empire on which the sun never set bores me. I have no time for empires without sunsets. And, and, and uh, Churchill, yes, of course, the war against Prussianism was a vitally necessary law. I lost my brother in that war. And I defended this country, my England, in fighting that war. And Churchill's role in it. If there is another more terrible war, I no doubt, against some version of Prussianism, I will defend Churchill again. But I have difficulty defending those who promote the empire. Kipling, I read Kipling when I was young, uh, but I don't, Kipling, you see, didn't, unlike Churchill, Churchill loved England. I believe that. Kipling admired England. I don't know that he loved it. And he admired England because England was strong, not because England was England. I would never level that kind of a charge against Churchill at all. One right here. Is it true that your wife, Frances, had to keep track of the money because it ran through your fingers? <coughs> yes, it's entirely true. And not just Frances, but my secretary, Dorothy Collins. In fact, uh, she, would, she would be the one more likely to prompt me that I would have to write another Father Brown mystery story to replenish the coffers, or have to go on a lecture tour to do the same thing. And I, I, one of the things I loved about going on lecture tours was it required me to have lunch in different inns all over England. And you see, what was on the menu in virtually every inn was cheese. And I love different cheeses, different cheeses. And they were never the same. So I didn't mind being told that I had to replenish the coffers if it meant that I could go on a lecture tour and have different cheeses all over England, yes. Uh, you would have loved Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, I, and and, and, and uh, one, one more thing, yes. Uh, it's also true that they would give me money, one of the two of them, at the start of the day. And invariably, I came home with nothing. I would give it to beggars, if nothing else. Yes. Of all your many writings, which would you prefer we not read? Which would I prefer that you not read? Oh, my goodness sakes. There's so many of them to choose from. <laughs> I, 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 I think there's any number of ones that you can skip and live a very, very happy, productive life. <laughs> you could... I, I, you could skip all of my novels, really. I, I much prefer to see ideas wrestling naked and rather than disguise them in novels. So I would rather that you read my essays and skip the novels. In my essays, my ideas are wrestling naked. And I think that that is a much, much better way to confront them 
So that would be my, my suggestion. I understand that you uh, either have or are about to have um, a significant impression on a young Clive Staples Lewis, and I wonder if you've met him yet in person or whether you know much about him. I, I, I know nothing about him. Uh, I, I wish I could... Uh, well, can I break character for a second here? Uh, I, um, uh, there's no evidence that they ever met. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. Lewis read Chesterton, and it turned him around. What he read was The Everlasting Man. Uh, when he would have been, that was published in 25. So Lewis would have been 27, maybe, something like that. And, and uh, he, um, you know, his famous line, Lewis's famous line, an atheist can't be too careful about what he reads. And uh, he, he read The Everlasting Man, and that, and that changed Changed his life, really. The, the story is that he was too shy. He knew, of, of course, of Chesterton. Um, but he was too shy. He wanted to go meet him, but he didn't do it. And uh, by the, I think Lewis, by 36, was just on the verge of becoming uh, a name of sorts. And uh, so I, uh, there's debate. I mean, I've heard stories that, that Chesterton knew of him. But to my knowledge, and my friend Dale Alquist, who knows more than I do uh, about Chesterton, that they never actually did, did meet. But, um, but Chesterton was nonetheless quite, influ quite influential. And by the way, uh, Orwell, the first published piece that Orwell ever had was in GK's Weekly, uh, kind of on a penny press in France. Um, uh, but Orwell had, uh, you know, Orwell was, uh, not a, a, a man of faith and, and, and very dismissive of, of, of the church and, um, and um, you know, tended to be dismissive of, of Chesterton for that reason. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Jaja.